Acts chapter 6, continuing with our study through the book of Acts. And when we began the book of Acts, I pointed out that Acts is a book of history. And um, specifically, the underlying uh, historical account, if you will, we look at through this lens, is that it's, what's being recorded is the work of the Holy Spirit through the disciples, through the early church, the first church. And when we began, we read how Luke recalled uh, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension alongside of this awaited for promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke told us about this event, and he told us about the promise of the Holy Spirit and how it was received on the day of Pentecost. Um, that is the annual feast of the harvest, and it's celebrated 50 days after the Passover feast. And we read that on that day, the 120 disciples who were gathered together, together in Jerusalem, that they received the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, and were filled with the supernatural power of God, the power that came down from heaven, is what we're told. Then equipped the church to be the witnesses that God had called them to be and to go preach the gospel message throughout Jerusalem. And we've read about that part of it and are reading about that part of it up to now. And um, we get in chapter 6 and 7 and on, we're going to see where the rest of that great commission was walked out as they also went into Judea, Samaria, and as we know, to all the ends of the earth, where you and I have become also hearers and recipients of that gospel message. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that the church today is uh, still fulfilling and walking out this last command of Jesus given to us, recorded in Matthew 28, right? <clears throat> Verses 19 through 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And having received the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, the early church did this. They obeyed Jesus' command. And uh, one of the blessings of that, or the result of that, is immediately saw the hand of God working through them in supernatural ways. And, and I think that's something that we all desire to have as a part of our life, to see God working through us and around us and in the world that we live in. And, um, but we also know that alongside all this great work that God was doing, we also saw attacks. We saw adversity and adversaries as we've read about them to some point. Satan uh, trying to or attempting to uh, prevent and undo what God was doing. And Luke accounts this adversity that came, across, uh, came against the early church in the midst of all these spiritual opportunities. And um, we first uh, read, uh, 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 well, we read about several things, but as far as they were, the attacks were from the inside as well as persecution from the outside. And when we're in chapter 5, we read about how um, Ananias and Sapphira uh, uh, were being used uh, by Satan, Satan filling their heart is what we read. And we also saw, I think, uh, uh, more importantly, is how this Holy Spirit-filled church not only endured the attacks and the problems, but they prospered through it. Um, and as we continue on into chapter 6, we read now of another attack. And, the, and, and this attack is a problem that came from within. And um, uh, it, it really was a problem that was um, revealed in two fronts. There was a problem, and then the way that it was being dealt with was also a problem. And so we'll talk about that. But being made aware of this, um, 
and, and as we've looked at this now for a few weeks, the, 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 the church had these kind of internal problems. It might cause some of us to be surprised. And I think it's because when we think back upon the, the early church in the book of Acts, we read about all these wonderful supernatural things taking place with these men and women who were of faith and full of power and there was miracles that were being performed and thousands were being added to the church and I think we somewhat idolize that as we look back on it and we forget that they weren't a perfect church. They weren't perfect people and the Bible's very honest in revealing to us the flaws and the struggles that they had and I think somewhat we can be surprised because I think that at some point, we all long for a perfect church because we know that there's coming a day when Christ will return and sin will be no more and, and the church will be reunited with Christ and it will be perfect. But this side of eternity, we shouldn't be looking for that. It doesn't mean we compromise with our sin or, or, or even not deal with, with sinfulness within the church, but we, 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 can't, we can't have this ideological or idealistic uh, perception that that the church should be something other than what it's not. It's made up of of sinners and imperfect people like like each of us. And and I think when we lose sight of that, uh, I've seen this with people as they move from church to church to church, because they're confronted with with what I say is common problems like what we read of here in the book of Acts that are still kind of you know seen within the church. And I think in that saying ultimately wins because they never get planted. They never become a part of a fellowship. They're never used by God. They don't, they don't continue to grow. And sadly, sometimes even they stop attending church. They, get, they, they, they go, it's this, there's, look at the problems. I, and, and they'd rather not be confronted with that or have to deal with that or, 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 or persevere with others through their, their sinfulness and, and their difficulties. But um, I, I'll tell you this. It was Billy Graham who first said, if you find the perfect church, don't, don't join it. Because cause you'll just ruin it. <laughs> and it's true. And, and often we're looking outward and we're, we're not also considering our, our, own, our own selves in light of that. And, and so because the church was and because the church is and because the church will always be made up of imperfect people, right? We should conclude that there will never be a perfect church. There was not with the very beginning and there is not now until we're all caught up together in heaven. But in the meantime... Here's the encouraging part. This is what we need to look past and through, even in the midst of this another announcement of this problem that the church was facing. In the meantime, knowing that the church will be full of people or have people who are deceitful or even people who are hypocritical, like Ananias and Sapphira, there there are also um, within the church what we look at here in chapter 6, some who within the church who believe they are better than others. But... Even imperfect people, this is the encouraging part of the story, even imperfect people can be full of faith and power and do great and wondrous things in the name of God. So with that, let's read the first six or seven verses of this chapter. We'll get through all of it this morning and then we'll pray and then we'll, 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 we'll look at it verse by verse. Father, um, I thank you God for um, this time that we get to have together. Thank you for Debbie's um, information and report about what's going on in Egypt. Lord, I'd never heard about that church there. and It's good to know that there are other brothers and sisters um, outside of the United States, and we know this, Lord, but who love you. And It's good to know, um, Father, where they're at and what they're going through so we can pray for them. And we do pray for the church there in Cairo. Lord, we pray that it would be 
provided for, that you would walk through them or with them through these challenges that they face, Lord. And as we maybe even are being confronted with the future of things not being the way that they are here for the church in the United States, Lord, that we may too um, see some persecution or suffering in the future for your name, for following you. I pray you would give us the same courage and strength and um, walking with us like you do with, with the church everywhere, Lord, through hard and difficult things. Um, Lord, that we would be men and women full of faith and power of the Holy Spirit. We would be used by you to do great and wondrous signs among, among your people. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Verse 1, it says, Now in the days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distributions. Then the twelve, this would be the twelve apostles, they summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word and then and the and the same please the whole multitude in other words both uh, who were on either side of this this disagreement that was taking place they they agreed and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and and the holy spirit and Philip and uh, Prochorus uh, Nicanor Timon Parmenius and Nicholas a proselyte from Antioch uh, who they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed and laid hands on them, then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and, and, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so we're told, and as we read a little bit further into verse 8 about Stephen even, but we know that as a church, the church at this time was full of faith, full of, of, of God's power. It was full of imperfect people, but these things were still present, and it began to multiply, not because they were perfect, not because they didn't have flaws, not because they didn't have problems, but because they were willing to persevere in the face of persecution, and they were willing to deal with the problems that arose from within in a godly way. And I was sharing with first service, the thing about perseverance, which, which we're also always encouraged to do in scripture and and we read about and we and we 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 even set our minds to that is is that perseverance doesn't come without the opportunity for perseverance doesn't come without adversity without hardships without struggle and so we should expect those things to come in hand in hand and we see that the church persevered and so we can rightly conclude that the power and growth that had come to the early church as a result of perseverance and as, and, as, and as a result of purity, these are the reasons for why the faith and the power was evident. They persevered and they pursued purity. What do I mean by that? They were willing to deal with this ungodliness that, that was within the church in a godly way. And these defining characteristics of the early church are an example. They're an example for us to follow. And it reminds me of what we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, which says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is his obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the, to, to the former lust. In other words, as we once lived, as 
as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And I call our attention to this admonition because even though um, we're imperfect, it does not give us an excuse to not pursue purity. It does not give us an excuse from, from, from striving to keep unity with one another as we deal with each other in, in, in godly ways. And here in verse 1, as we read, we're told that in the days that the church was multiplying, right, there was growth. There was, there was more people, but there was also more problems. Another problem rose up. And there's a proverb that, that speaks about that. It talks about where there are many oxen, there is much poop. You can go and read it for yourself. That's Sean Maher translation. But that's what it says. But also says that, that where there are much oxen, there's a lot of work that gets done. There's a lot of blessing. There's a lot of fruit. There's a lot of reward. But, but, but with growth, there's going to be problems. Another attack from Satan, right? With doors of opportunity, with spiritual doors of opportunity, there is going to be spiritual adversity. And, and in this moment, it was an attempt to bring division, is what we read within the early church as a complaint was brought up against the Hebrew believers by the Hellenists. And we know that the church had found themselves with many needs. We talked about this. There was many practical needs that were, had, 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 had come to the surface or that was with the early church, this congregation that had gathered together as a result of these thousands of people who, who came to believe in Jesus as their Lord. And I mentioned it last week. Bible scholars estimate that at this time, 25,000 people had become part of the early church. And we know that most of them were not from Jerusalem. Their home wasn't in Jerusalem. They had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast at this time. This is where they were being witnessed to. This is where they came to faith. In the light of this, we're told in chapter 5 that many of the church members, those who were Jerusalem, those who had things, were selling these things and giving what they could to those around them so it could be distributed, so that the needs could be met. But with this distribution, we see that there arose this problem, right? It became a daily occurrence, and I don't know exactly what that looked like. I think we can imagine what that might have looked like. But there was a problem, apparently, this problem was really, I think, the result of a long-time prejudice that the Hebrew people had towards the Hellenists even before the church had been birthed. And the Hellenists, what we know about them is, is they, were, they were Hebrews, they were Jews who spoke Greek. That was their, their language, not Aramaic, not Hebrew, and they lived according to the Greek customs. Consequently, the Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with the Greek culture, right? It was a pagan culture. And Hellenists, vice versa, they, they also had prejudice against these Hebrews as they looked at them as holier-than-thou traditionalists. And as a result, the Hellenists were discriminated against and looked down upon in the situation by the Jews who practiced the Hebrew customs and spoke the Hebrew or Aramaic language. And so there was already this natural suspicion between these two groups of believers, right? And Satan was looking to take advantage of this standing suspicion and prejudice towards one another. And apparently this social prejudice had now crept its way into the church in, in this, this way where there was discrimination and the Hellenist widows were, were, were not what we're, what we're being told given the equal provision at these daily distributions. And the idea is, is that the, 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 the Hebrew 
not the Hellenists, the Hebrew widows were getting more or they were getting the priority. Maybe they were at the front of the line and then whatever was left was not enough and, and, and some were missing out. And it wasn't working out the way that it was fair or was a godly way. And I think it's safe to say that we don't have that exact same kind of problem in the church today. We don't have Hebrews and Hellenists and that kind of situation. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have the same problem with prejudice in the church and, and the same problem with acts of discrimination that take place. And, and within the church, I think it's most commonly towards people who don't look a certain way or people who don't dress a certain way as they're often looked down upon. But the Bible sternly warns against this in the book of James. We're told in James chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four, about this ungodly attitude. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. That's the instruction. That's the command. Don't allow for discrimination. Don't allow for our prejudices to guide us, to influence us, to control us. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also in a poor man with filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, It says, here, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? And here's the concluding thought. Here's the actual accusation. And you become judges with evil thoughts. It's that simple. That's what's taking place. And it's safe to say that prejudices come in many different forms. And at the core of all prejudice, though, when you think about it, is this judgmental attitude as defined by James here that displays ultimately this sense of superiority, right? Where it's this I am better than you attitude. It has no place in God's church. It has no place among God's people who are called, ultimately, are we not to be like our Father in heaven who clearly tells us that he does not demonstrate partiality, and so neither should we. Remember in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, it says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for you all were baptized into Christ, and you have closed yourselves with Christ. We've come through the same door. We've all received the same free gift, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He says, there is now neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, and the list can go on and on and on, however we want to fill in the blank with what we face today, societally, or even in our own hearts. He says, for you are all one in Christ. We stand as equals before God in Christ. We should see each other as equals in Christ. And I believe there is one more important thing to point out, right? I said there was this two-faced problem with what was going on here. If you notice in verse 1, we have the complaint or we have the, 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 the discrimination that's being brought forth, but we also are, are addressed, we're told that there was a complaint brought against the Hebrews. And we might think that, well, they came to the leadership and, and they expressed this concern, but that's not what's being implied here. In fact, in the old King James translation of, of the Bible, the word for complaint is the word murmuring. And I think that gives us a better indication of exactly what was going on here. Because the Greek word translated to complaint and murmuring is this word, gangosmas. And it means this, grumbling talk that is done in private. That's what was going on. 
There was whispering, there was complaining, there was murmuring, there was slanderous talk about each group of people here in light of what was going on. In other words, this issue of the discrimination was not presented to the leadership with with the intention of having something resolved. Rather, it was a murmur. It was a complaint done in secret that was ultimately heard by the leadership from the people. And I think in light of this, we should conclude that it was a situation where everybody wanted to talk about the problem, where everybody wanted to say a bad thing against one another, but nobody wanted to do anything about the problem. The Hellenists, look at it, the Hellenist believers, believers in Christ, those who had been baptized in Christ, right? These Greek-speaking Hellenists who believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they were complaining about their unfair treatment amongst themselves, about the Hebrew believers. And, and vice versa, the Hebrew believers were complaining among themselves about the Hellenist believers who thought that they were being unfairly treated. Can you believe these people think they're unfair? It's back and forth. And yet the Apostle Paul, he writes about this kind of behavior in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 15. And he says this, very simply, do all things without complaining and arguing. How many things? And I think we don't take that as a, as a, as a I, I think we justify it. Well, we, we can complain about this or we can argue about this because this is worth complaining about and this is worth arguing about. Not to say that when there's a problem we don't deal with it, we do. But we don't do it in this kind of way that we see going on. And Paul writes about that. Do all things, let it not be so among us, without complaining and arguing. Why? He says that you may become the blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Ultimately, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, it's your witness. And they, the, the world looks in and sees us bickering and complaining and picking on one another and tearing each other down and not having unity and, and, and divided. He says, there's, basically Paul's saying, people are going to see that and they're not going to want anything to do with you. And it's a sad truth when that happens. We shine as lights in the world. And this is a big part of it. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that complaining and murmuring, and I'm sure you can relate to this and have experienced this too in your own life, that it's a damaging thing. And it can even destroy a work of God. And so we need to understand that this kind of behavior is fertile ground uh, for satanic behavior, for Satan to grow division within the body of Christ. And this type of murmuring attitude cannot have a place in our hearts. And I think we should check our hearts today to see if that's in us can't be in our fellowship. And so we read on in verse 2, then the 12 taking action in this way, hearing about this, right? Some in the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among yourselves seven men, here they are, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so hearing about the murmuring, right? They, they, they gather the multitude and, 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 um, they ask them. They invite them. I think it was even a command in that sense. You be part of the solution. We want you to be part of the solution, fixing this problem. This is what we're called to do. Not to stand off and complain, not to stand off and murmur, not to tear one another down, but to go, how can I be a part of the solution here? 
And in doing so, they asked the church to pick from themselves. We read here seven men whom they could appoint to oversee the business of these daily distributions. Very important job at this point. Lots of material, lots of money uh, coming in. And so in doing so, we see, I think, overall this repeated pattern of how the disciples choose to deal with the the, the problems uh, that they faced as an early church in a godly way. And I I believe their example is what needs to be followed by our church. We, we talk all the time about, you know, what kind of church are we going to be like? What kind of example are we going to follow? And we look back to the early church and, and we, can, we can see their example and go, wow, there's a lot of things that we should be like, and this is one of them. And here I'll say this, not only by what they did and how they went about this, but, but also by what they did not do. And this is what I mean. First of all, what I see that they did not do is they just didn't simply throw the complainers out. And, and, and the reason why I mention that is because I think our tendency as human beings is to go where we get to that point where we're complaining, we get to that point where we're murmuring, where we're having such difficulty with an individual, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody within the church, we get to this point where we go, I'm, I'm done with you. And we may not literally throw them out, but we throw them out of our heart, we throw them out of our lives, we don't want anything to do with them. And they didn't do this. In this example for us to follow, it's, here's the reason why. Because uh, if anybody has good reason to be done with us, it's God. And yet he never does. He never goes, I just, I'm sick of you, I'm tired of you, it's enough, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. God's faithful when we're faithless. He's always there to forgive us, to restore us, to show us grace and mercy and love. And I'm so grateful because... I, I come before God and I'm going, I go, I don't know why you're still here with me. I think we all feel that way. He promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. And I think we're called to the same thing as family members of the body of Christ. To not give up on one another. To not allow our our shortcomings and our faults and our failures and our sinfulness to be something that we go, ah, I'm just going to toss you out. Here's another thing that they, they, they did not do. They didn't divide into two congregations. This is fertile ground for a church split. We could have the documentation of the first church split, but we don't. The Hellenists could have said, ah, we'll just, we'll just go take care of ourselves and, and we'll have our own congregation. And, and, and the Hebrews could have said the same thing. And we see that in churches. We've seen that in churches, have we not? How sad is that? How destructive to the work of God is that? They didn't divide into two congregations. And, and here's the other thing is they didn't just shun the unhappy people, right? And, and, and this, is, this one is maybe a little silly, but I got to say it. They didn't form a committee <laughs> to just discuss the problem to death. I hate committees. We don't do committees here. They dealt with it. And I want to draw our attention to what they did and what they didn't do because the truth is is that there will be problems that arise in our own fellowship. There have been problems that that have arisen and there are probably some right now that we're dealing and working with. And It's just part of it. Where there are much oxen, there is much, you know. 
And it's a challenge for us. As I read this, it's a challenge for us, a call for us to deal with each other in godly ways, no matter what the problem is, in in ways where we are seeking to be part of the solution, persevering with one another, loving one another, enduring with one another, and not being a part of the problem. And we should be reminded of this because simply complaining and murmuring when something doesn't go our way or when a problem arises, it is a reaction that we are all tempted to do in our flesh. But complaining doesn't fix the problem. In fact, I'll tell you, as I read here and what I know to be true, it only makes things worse. And so how do we not react according to the flesh when we're tempted to? We must do what we see here. We must rely upon the power of God and decide to be a part of the solution so that we can be the lights that God's called us to be, that God would have us to be. And when we see here in this situation, the seven men who were chosen from among them We're told that they had to be right of a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. In other words, they were to be men. There was the standard, the standard that that was to be met. Equally today, that same thing should transition into our own lives, into our own congregation, in that there are standards for people or men or women who are put into servant positions. This is what Scripture teaches us. Here's the first standard. Look at verse 3. It might be easy to pass over when we think of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, but there are four standards that are given here, not just three. And the first is is that they were to be men who were chosen from among them. In other words, fellow believers who trusted in and relied upon and clung to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They weren't to go out and hire some kind of Hebrew firm of of administrative geniuses who weren't following after Jesus Christ to oversee the money and oversee the distribution in a fair and and, and, and non-biased way. And I think this might seem like an obvious requirement, right? Some who from are among them, but all too often I've seen churches and other Christian ministries employ and even place people in servants' positions who don't have any faith in Jesus Christ. Not just agnostic, even atheistic in their beliefs. And, 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 and even, even against God and against Christ. This has been some, there's been some public revelation in this over the years where there have been churches that even hired great musicians that are anti-Jesus to lead worship because they're great musicians. And they justify it saying, oh, they have great talent, they have great abilities. Say, oh, it's an opportunity to witness to them. And they rationalize it and they justify it. However, this requirement of being a committed follower of Jesus is a foundational thing that can never be compromised. We're confronted with it regularly at the Bridge Youth Center where we open up volunteering and service there to people in the community that are outside of our church family. But a requirement as you go through that application process is that you be a, a true believer in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you attend a fellowship regularly. And we've had to tell a lot of people in this community, some on city council, and other people, I don't want to give away too many, I don't want you to figure it out, but people in powerful positions in this community who could benefit what we do down there, we've had to say, no, you don't get to be here. And, and this is the reason why. But then we also witness to them, tell them about Jesus. Tell them we want them here, but we want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ first. It's an uncompromising standard. Even though it may benefit us in the world, we don't compromise that. See, there are many places. There's the reasons for why are found many places through Scripture. In Amos 3.3, it practically says, how can two walk together if they are not agreed? 
2 Corinthians, in a more uh, uh, embellished way, says in, in 6, chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? For what fellowship, here, here, very simple, very practical, what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? And what communion does light have with darkness? Now, the second requirement with that one being foundational, they were to be men of good reputation, which means they were to be trustworthy, to have integrity. And we can understand why this would be a very important thing as they would be managing a great deal of money and, and a great meal of material things as they met the needs of the church and did these distributions and administrated that program. But when we consider this, tra- this, tra- this trait, right, of a good reputation, we should consider that and we should know that a person's reputation is simply the byproduct of their character, right? If you have a bad character, you're going to have a bad reputation. If you have a good character, you should have a good reputation. And in light of this, it's been rightly said that we as Christians, as a matter of fact, I have this printed out and pinned to my wall. Basically, it says, worry about your character and let God defend your reputation. And I have to have that up there because lots of times when my reputation, either outside of the community, especially when I ran for school board, oh my gosh, Talk about your reputation being slandered and lied against is the, the tendency is to go out there and go, oh, yeah, defend your reputation. And God has told me very clearly over and over again, he says, you worry about your character, you let me worry about your reputation. But as we continue on, we see that the next requirement was that they were to be men who were full of the Holy Spirit. And man, we can go to Scripture and we get very spiritual on this. What does that mean? I just want to bring two simplistic thoughts. First of all, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're not full of yourself. It means they were men who were controlled by the Holy Spirit, right? Demonstrating the attributes lived out in their lives as listed in Galatians chapter 5 as we've been talking about this over and over again. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What was evident in their lives? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, long-suffering. And lastly, we see there were to be men who were full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. And the world has a different view on this, and I just want to be very clear on this as we're not being confused with what the world says and what Scripture is saying. And, 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 and I am all for, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved. I approve and believe in education and, 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 and academic excellence, I do. But having a degree or going to a seminary does not make a person wise in and of itself. Education does not equate to wisdom. <coughs> Remember, wisdom is simply knowledge rightly applied. And I've met a, ver- a lot of smart people who have all kinds of degrees, whether they're, they're biblical and seminary and, and theology and all this, or just secular world things that are they're not wise at all. They're, they're, they're fools, in fact, is what the Bible says in many ways, evident by the way they live. But wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And the Bible teaches us this. Wisdom does not come from a textbook. Wisdom comes from having a right relationship with God, the living God. That's where wisdom comes from. In fact, it was David who wrote in Psalm 111, verse 10. And this is where, 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 where it all begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all of those who do his commandments. As a matter of fact, one last thought on the Bible tells us to avoid people who are constantly learning but never coming to the knowledge 
of truth of God. Because apart from that relationship, they will never have true wisdom in their life. And so these men were able to, these men were to be men who lived skillfully, right, as they rightfully divided God's word and applied it to their lives obediently. Not just hearers, but doers. And the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and spoke of these statements as well as some other qualifications that need to be seen in a person's life before they're put in a servant position. And, and we strive, we try to, to, to employ these same biblical standards here at our church. Because when, here's the reason why. It's because when these things that are exampled by the apostles here with the early church, when they are followed by us as a church, the church then will function as it's supposed to. And with that, I want to say before I move on, because uh, there is a call for us all to, 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 to find our place. But it's not about perfection, guys. We can read these standards and we can see this being employed and go, man, I don't even, I, I, I fall short. I, I, I don't, I'm not always like this. But it's not about perfection. It's about the direction that a person's headed. We're not perfect. We're not a perfect church. But we're following after Christ. And this is the direction we're going. Paul says to be blameless before the Lord. That's not perfect. Being blameless, being a blameless man or woman means when you recognize your faults, your failures, you, you confess them and you seek to make them right. That's heading the right direction. And in regards to the functioning of the body, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, and gave this great analogy of, of the human body, right? And many body parts. And, and he says some are called to this and some are called to that. But we all have a place. That's the point. We all have a place in the body, in this body, and it's, 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 we're all needed in order for this body to function effectively. And here in verse 7, look at it. This is the result, the end result of a church that functions according to God's standard, according to God's plan, as we're told that the Word of God, as a result of them taking this action and dealing with one another and the things that they were facing in a godly way, is that, is that God's Word spreads. God's Word spread <clears throat> and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, even so much that the priests who served in the temple were becoming believers. I would encourage you with the truth that we're all needed in order to function at God's desires. In order for us to be effective here in Canyon City and then onward into our Judea and our Samaria to the ends of the earth, whether you're called to Egypt or not, <laughs> wherever that looks, whatever that looks like, in order to be effective and for God's word to spread, each of us, each one of us needs to find our place and work together as one body. So I'd encourage you, find out what part of the body you are. And then plug in where God has called you and the areas that he's gifted you. So we read on and we're told about Stephen now. We'll be told about Philip next week, but Stephen, one of these men that were chosen, one of the seven, full of faith and power, it says, that he did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, right? Where there is opportunity, there is adversity. Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him and brought him to the council. This would be the same Sanhedrin, the ruling council that we've read of in the past. And they are also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not 
ceased to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. I think that last statement says a lot about the person of, 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 of Stephen here. Because um, I don't know about you, but if it was me in this situation, I, I don't know if I would have an angelic-looking face. It might be a little bit angry. I pray that if I'm ever in the situation that I, would, I wouldn't be that way. I know it would be a struggle, but just think about that. They saw goodness and kindness and love. I think that's what we're being told. And so as we continue through this, we're given these details about Stephen. We'll be told again about Philip in, in, cha- in chapter 8. But listen, both of these men, they started out, I want to point this out, doing something what we might see from on the outside as maybe little or unimportant, right? They weren't up front. They were working behind the scenes in the servant position. And yet, we see that God was using Stephen here in greater ways and even Philip in greater ways. And it's a reminder, as the Bible tells us, that those who are faithful over a little will always be entrusted with more. And Stephen may have been qualified by these standards that we just read about, but let's not make a mistake. He was also one of the imperfect people here who made up this imperfect church. And God still used Stephen in a mighty way. And in these verses, we read that Stephen, I love this, was full of faith and power. And as a result, he did signs and wonders among the people. And it's important to point out that throughout the Bible, we read of many different accounts of God's servant heroes. And we're told about them in complete honesty. We're told about their works, their successes, as well as their sin, and as well as their failures. Men and women who were weak and had even been failures in the eyes of the world, yet they were men and women that God used in mighty ways to accomplish His will and do His work. And I think that's an encouragement for us to see today because we're the same imperfect people that God wants to use. And in the face of these men and women's weaknesses and failures, we always read, we're always told that they found wisdom and they found strength in God, not of themselves, and God was glorified through them. And this very truth of what God does is defined or accounted or detailed, if you will, in 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul writing to the church in verses 26 through 31. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Here it is. So that no flesh should glory in his presence, where you can't go, look what I did, look at how great I am, right? He said, but of you are in Christ Jesus, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom, became for us, Wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, right? It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus in us. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So that when people see these great and wonderful things that God's doing in and through us and through our fellowship, we don't stand up and go, yeah, I know. It's so we recognize and we understand. And it's, it's, it's not just so that we walk in humility, but it's, it's so that people know. People go, people go, I know you. There was, And I've shared this story before. There was this 
kid that I grew up with is actually my sister's friend, a couple of years younger. And he had moved to Pueblo here to work out at the mustard plant. He had worked at a company there in, 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 East, uh, in, uh, in Washington State where we grew up. And he got transferred. Um, and uh, he didn't know that I'd become a believer. And he had no clue that I was a pastor of a church. But he got saved at the Calvary Chapel back in Washington where I was from. He moved out here. Uh, another guy brought him to church here. And, and uh, he saw me. And he's, he got done. He's all, are you Sean Maher? Is Michelle your sister? And I'm like, yeah. And he's all, he was blown away. His mouth was to the ground. He couldn't believe it. And I have a pretty, uh, um, we'll say, yeah, colorful past. <laughs> and uh, and then the cool thing it is, is it's like, it's not me. It's right. It's God in me. It's Jesus in me. That transformation, that, that, that from darkness into light and so many other areas of my life, it was a testimony to him. He was amazed. And that's what takes place. And people go, I know you. <laughs> and yet, this cool thing God's doing through you. And the point is, guys, for each of us, when we understand that we're called to into these different areas and we look at our own faults and failures and, and, and our weaknesses and, and our insufficiencies and we go, we, we, we struggle in answering the call and what God would have us do because we see ourselves as unqualified. We understand that, that it's the same words that Jesus spoke to the Apostle Paul that God speaks to us where he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that's what we need to remember. And so as we consider Stephen, we see that he was made perfect by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was mightily, as he boldly shared the gospel message, uh, as it was heard by these men, right, who we now read of in verse 9, these men of the synagogue, of the freedmen. There were descendants, this specific group of synagogue of men that this gathered together, these Hebrew believers, right? Um, what we know about them, uh, history teaches us that they had been Roman slaves, Synagogue of the freedmen. But they had been Roman slaves who had won their freedom from Rome. We don't know exactly how, probably different in each situation. Perhaps they served and fought. I don't know. Um, in some situations, um, well, I don't want to get into all of it. You can go study it out yourself. But, but they gathered together from different places here in Jerusalem, throughout the Roman Empire, and we're told from where. The one I want to point out is Cilicia. I'll point that out to you because when we look at Acts chapter 21, verse 39, we're told about a man named Saul of Tarsus who was from Cilicia, the Apostle Paul, who he'd later become. This is, he was from here, and more than likely, he was a part of the synagogue. And I point this out because he was probably one of these men who rose up against Stephen at this time. We'll get more indication of that as we read on later on. And, and Stephen spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in so it says that no one could match him. He was not able to be resisted, his wisdom and power. And I, I want to draw a quick attention to this as we close out this morning because there's a promise that Jesus spoke, I think, that is being fulfilled in the text that we read right here. Because listen, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 16, he said, he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful starts. And, and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering up to the synagogues and prisons. That's what we're reading about. Jesus prepared his disciples and told them about that. But he also says this, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesakes, but it'll turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. 
Therefore, settle it in your heart not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And Debbie talked about the persecuted church in Egypt, and we know that globally overall, the Christian church is persecuted. We've not experienced that so much here, but I think we should take heed to what we're seeing in this promise and remember it, because I don't think it's far off, especially in light of what we see going on in, in Israel and in the surrounding area and public tide, public opinion coming against what Israel is doing now and understanding what we read in, in, in the prophetic passages of the Old Testament and what we see going, man, we're in the last days and it looks like the, 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 the day of the Lord is drawing very near and, and, and Jesus says, he says, leading up to that, they're going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. He says, but, but don't fear. It's going to be opportunity. It's going to be opportunity. And none will be able to resist the words that you speak. And so it was the power of the Holy Spirit that gave Stephen the wisdom. Debbie, if you want to come up and whoever else is here on the worship team, gave him the wisdom, but also gave him the courage to speak so that none could resist. Right? This was not the, the, the apostles already knew that what they were doing was in violation of what the ruling authorities of the day had commanded, right? And they're like, well, you, whatever you think is best, that's fine, but we're going we're gonna to do what God says above what you say. And so there was already this threat, and yet Stephen, full of courage, full of power, speaks. And likewise, guys, when we're given occasion to be a witness for Jesus and share the gospel message, we can rest. We can trust in the fact we have the same promise descended down to us through the words that Jesus spoke, that God, through the Holy Spirit, will empower us. He'll encourage us to speak the truth, and, and we'll be given a mouth that speaks wisdom, and even so much so that, that, that we, we, will, we will stand back and be surprised that we said what we said. Where you get done, and, and you just feel that God moment where you're speaking and sharing, and, and you get done, and you're like, wow, I didn't even know that was in me. 2 Corinthians, listen, I want to point this out. This is the last verses that we'll read. Because what we see in the text is even though many were being added to the church, there were people who were receiving, we also see that there was this hard-hearted group that resisted. And, and I point that out because not just to know that there may be persecution or adversity, but to go, we're not called to be responsible for the outcome. We're just to be responsible to answer the call that God gives us to walk through the open doors that he presents to us. Because what we're told in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16, that we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says, you smell. We have an odor to the world. To one group it's this, to the other group this. He says, to the one where the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And sadly, we see that for Stephen, with these men who were perishing, who conspired, and who brought false witness, that to them he was the aroma of death. But he was faithful. He was faithful. And so, Father, I pray that we too would be found faithful as we wait for your return. For, Father, I pray that we as a church family, 
as we shine as a light into this lost and dying world. Lord, that we would, we would be known for our love for you and our love for one another and a love, Father, your love for this lost world who you desire to save. Lord, may we follow the example of the early church with, a wide, with our eyes wide open, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you stand?